I always think to be able to have the children play a critical part in our worship, especially in this season, when we are reminded that Jesus Christ came not as an adult, but came as a baby. And the reality of Jesus coming in that vulnerable state and what that means for us and our own faith. So it is good to be led by children. Amen? All right, well, we are continuing on uh, in our Advent. And so before we begin, just a couple quick things for you all. Um, in case you have forgotten, this coming up Friday, the 21st, it's amazing this, uh, how quickly we are coming to Christmas, our Jesus Jam with a side of compassion. Uh, it's going to be the doors open at 6.30, and then uh, the service will actually begin at 7 o'clock. And it's a family service, um, which means that everyone can come. If you're single, um, if you have a family of, of 20, if you uh, have a kid, if you act like a kid, it doesn't matter. If you don't even like kids, well, if, if you really don't like kids, you may not want to come. But everyone else, uh, by all means, actually anybody can come. And um, so we invite you to that. Uh, and then Sunday, uh, two days later, will actually be our cantata. And so our normal 9 and 1030. But we invite you to come and to uh, uh, worship in song. There will also be a short proclamation, a shorter proclamation uh, than usual uh, on that day as well. Um, and then on Christmas Eve, our 7, 9, and 11, we have child care at 7. Uh, if you are a long-time uh, ZPCer and you're trying right now to decide whether to come to the 7 or the 9 and you're debating it, let me encourage you to come to the 9. Uh, and so um, the 7 o'clock is always the most crowded one, the 9 o'clock less so. The 11 o'clock, it's usually just me and Scott. And so, um, just, just kidding. Uh, um, and so, uh, but if you're wondering which one to come to, but by all means, if seven's the only one you come to, you come, doesn't matter, we'll find a space for you, and it'll be great to gather together and worship, and remembering that at the 11 o'clock, um, we will have communion as well, but all three of them will have candlelight, and so it's a beautiful service, so I invite you then. Also, uh, in case you are wondering, I mentioned this last week, but if you weren't here, or if you are here and you have forgotten, we did get some new lights put in, uh, and so let me, you guys all looked up, and so, um, we um, remember last week I said uh, I introduced for some of us the notion of foot candles, which I had never been familiar with. Typically, in a sanctuary like this, you should have 16 to 20 foot candles everywhere. There were parts of our sanctuary that was at six. Uh, and so, if you're wondering today, if you're sitting back in the corners and you're like, why is it so much harder for me to go to sleep than usual? That is why. It's a little bit brighter, um, but we are thankful um, for that light. And so with that, sisters and brothers, let us continue uh, in our look at, at Advent, um, at faith, or excuse me, at hope, at joy, today at peace, and then next Sunday at love. And so let's begin by looking at Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. This was the same message as in the lighting of the Advent, but this is uh, through the paraphrase of the message. It says this, Micah proclaims, but you, Bethlehem, David's country, the runt of the litter. From you will come the leader who will shepherd rule Israel. He'll be no upstart, no pretender. His family tree is ancient and distinguished. Meanwhile, Israel will be in foster homes until the birth pangs are over and the child is born. And the scattered brothers come back home to the family of Israel. And he will stand tall in his shepherd rule by God's strength, centered in the majesty of God revealed. And the people will have a good and safe home, for the whole world will hold him in respect, peacemaker of the world. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we gather this morning after having been led by your children and your young people in praise, and we give you praise for that. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. 
O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So this morning, uh, before we kind of dive into looking at peace, uh, I just want to briefly remind us about the importance of the Advent season. I wasn't raised with Advent, so I didn't really know what all of that even meant. Um, But one of the things I've realized is the older I've gotten, the more that I have appreciated seasons like Advent or Lent. Probably because the older I've gotten, the busier it seems that I am. And one of the things that I love is that Advent sets apart a certain amount of time for us then to be able to reflect and look at how we are actually living. One of the things that I've compared it with is being like a speed bump in our life, if you will. And, you know, as you're kind of driving a speed bump, you should slow down. It makes you more aware of what's going on around you. We pay attention to that. And the reality, of course, is if you don't slow down when you have speed bumps, if you just keep driving through them again, and again and again, eventually you are going to wreck. Something is going to happen. The wheels are going to come off the car. And in much the same way, unless we take time periodically to slow down, then more than likely the wheels are going to come off of our lives. Uh, One of the other images that I thought about this week that I just want to share is is an image that I, I got as kind of doing some of the doctoral work that I've been doing. I've been reading a lot of books on leadership. Some of it is good. Some of it is not good. Um, but one of the images that I really like that you may be familiar with is by Ron Heifetz. And he talks about how a good leader will go up on a balcony, if you will, a proverbial balcony, and will look over the dance floor. And the dance floor is kind of the business over which he or she is leading. And, 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 and it's critical to do that because in the midst of kind of being in that, it's so chaotic. The organization is so chaotic and you're going day to day. You're trying to get everything done. There's so much to be done. And you may not be paying attention at all to how the business is really doing and whether or not it's doing well or not. And so getting up on the balcony gives you some perspective to be able to see things differently, to assess and to reflect. And then Heifetz says, well, of course, then after that, you have to then take what you've learned and you have to go back onto the dance floor, into the business world. You can't, or into the business, you can't just kind of, you know, lead from up here. You have to then go back and say, this is what I've learned and and what difference does that make in how we're running our business? I think in many ways, Advent, if you will, is an opportunity for all of us to get up on a balcony on an Advent balcony, and to assess our lives. Again, we are running so quickly to and fro, hither and thither. I haven't used it the last few weeks, and people have seriously complained. So hither and thither, that's good. I'm glad you're into that. Um, But life is so fast for the vast majority of us. And what getting up on the balcony does is it gives us some separation for those of us who will truly engage in it. And allows us to see, well, what are we dancing to? And what are we dancing like? And are we even dancing to the right kind of music at all? And getting up on the balcony creates some space for us to genuinely reflect on our priorities, on our values. And is the things that we're doing, are they helping us? Are they helping us to live lives that are brighter and more beautiful? Are they shaping us more like Jesus or not? 
And one of the great things that I also love about this sense is it reminded me of my, my father. He, uh, when he lived in Seattle, he lived in this condo up that overlooked the city. And, and when I was a kid, I, I loved to kind of go, and I wasn't as scared of heights as I am now. And I would love to go to the balcony that overlooked the city, and I would love to always kind of lean over, right, and see what I could see over on this side. And maybe if somebody was on the balcony over there neighboring, and then I'd love to look over and lean over on this side. And I think that Advent does the same thing. Advent, what you do is if, if you look to the left, if you look to the past, it reminds us of the reality that Jesus has been born, of what happened 2,000 years ago, that Emmanuel is God with us. And it reminds us of what difference does that make? Does it make a difference in how we are dancing today if we genuinely believe that Jesus was born out of love for us? Of course, not only that, it also helps us to see in the near past, in those places where Jesus has been alive in our lives over the last several years. And the more that you can see that, the more we become a people of hope and a people of joy as we see where God is at work. But of course then, as we said a lot the last couple of weeks, you also can look to the right and to the future and we are reminded that Jesus is going to come again. It was so easily forget that we're in, we're in the dance. But when you remember that, right? What did we say? It's like the marathon when I thought I was going to die and I could barely move. And when I saw the finish line, everything changed. And I began to shuffle a little bit faster. I began to actually believe that I might really finish this thing. My present changed because I saw what was coming in the future. And so Advent is a season for us to get out of our everyday lives and say, what difference would it make if we really believed and knew that Jesus was coming again? Eugene Peterson says that we borrow joy. I would suggest we borrow hope. We borrow peace from the future. And it changes how we live this very day. And then we take those things and we bring it into our daily lives. We do not want to be a church that stands up here and makes great proclamations about joy and peace and love and everyone feels good about themselves and then we go back to our daily lives and absolutely nothing changes. That is a waste of all of our time. And so we want to ask the questions, what do we learn here and what vision and how does that help us then to go into our daily lives? And so we are in this Advent balcony, if you will, right now. And if you hear nothing else today, Here's something I want you to do. I want you to stop and I want you to breathe. Literally, right now. I, hopefully you are, but I want you to take a big breath in and out. In and out. Because this week is going to go by so quickly with so much to do. And it would be a shame if in the midst of that, we forgot the reason why it is that we celebrate this season. And so as a part of that, I want us to look this morning at a very simple message. It is the simple message of peace. This is, of course, what Micah is talking about. And for the people to whom Micah was talking there, Israel, Judah, this would have been, as scholars tell us, a time when they would have found it very difficult to have fathomed peace. 
The Assyrians were always coming in and attacking them during this time. And so violence was prevalent, was popping up all over the place. The economy was making a big shift from bartering trades only to, to, of goods to all of a sudden goods for money. So there was this economic upheaval. Not only that, but in other parts of Micah, um, he is talking about the leadership and how they are corrupt. They are taking bribes and, and how they are hypocrites, right? And so let's remember this. What's happening in this time when Micah is prophesying? Well, what's happening, of course, is that there is this great economic upheaval. There is violence that seems to be popping up. And there is a mistrust between people and their leadership. Sometimes it's easier to understand what they're going through than others. And it seems like perhaps this isn't that far of a leap for us to understand, right? And in the midst of that, Micah says, I want you to know that the peacemaker, the one of peace, is on his way. And of course, as followers of Jesus, we would say that the one who Micah is talking about is, of course, Jesus Christ. The one who has come and the one who will come again. That he is the peacemaker. He is the one who brings peace. This is what Paul was talking about in his letter to the Ephesians. Paul says that Jesus is our peace. Now, I want to point out something to you here quickly. Ben Witherington makes this remark, which is that he doesn't say that Jesus is going to bring peace or that Jesus is going to point us to peace, though certainly those both could be true. But what he says is Jesus is our peace, which means much as we have said when it comes to hope or it comes to joy, that peace is not about whether or not the stock market is doing well or whether or not all of your relationships are going swimmingly or whether your job is performing, you're performing wonderfully or whether your kids are getting straight A's and going to the best of colleges. That peace, it has very little to do with that and has to do simply with who Jesus is. What does the Psalm 23 say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. In other words, peace does not mean that you will have no valleys, that you will have no shadows, that you will have no death. It means that in the midst of those things, Jesus will be with us. That peace ultimately is about our being reconciled with God and being in relationship with Christ. St. Augustine, who lived back in the 4th century primarily, he talked about, he, he was always seeking to find peace. And he tried to do it in various and sundry ways, different religions, different philosophies, and pleasure, and relationships, and wealth, and success. And finally, he discovered that peace was only going to come, not through any of those things, but was only going to come in Jesus Christ himself. And so he made that somewhat famous saying when he said, our hearts are resting until they rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they rest in Jesus. And what Augustine realized is that far too often we are trying to find rest, our hearts are, in everything but Jesus Christ. And what Augustine discovered is that you will only have peace in Jesus 
Now, this is also what we see in Micah later in the fifth chapter. Micah says that the Lord is going to come and the Lord is going to destroy idols and sacred poles and images. And the reason why the Lord is going to do that, one of the reasons is because the Lord knows that so often that is where we try and find our ultimate hope, our ultimate meaning, our ultimate identity, our ultimate peace is always in something Else. And we are. It may look different than it did in the time of Micah, but we are always trying to find our worth and our identity and in purpose elsewhere. John Calvin has this great phrase where he says, our hearts are idol-making factories. And one of the difficult things, as we've discussed before, is this reality that so often the thing that we are putting our greatest hope and, and, and joy and our purpose and meaning is, is oftentimes they can be good things, like a spouse or a child or a job. Right? Those are nothing wrong with those things. And sometimes we can even be sacred things, right? Like a church that we put up on a hill that we, that we idolize or a particular program or ministry or even a pastor. Now, you guys wouldn't do that, but other people... The, Other people have better pastors, right? But they would put them up. And whenever you do that, what Paul knows, what Micah knows, is that whenever you do that, you will never find peace. Because here's the thing. People and programs and churches and jobs will always disappoint you. You may not know this yet, but your spouse is not perfect, Why is everyone just staring right at me? Don't look to the left or right. Don't look to the left or right. (laughs) Of course you know that. It only takes zero seconds to discover that. But if your ultimate hope or purpose is in that particular person, then they are going to disappoint you and your peace will crumble. Your children are going to struggle and they will disappoint you at time. Your pastor is going to disappoint you at time. There is no question about that. And if our peace and our hope is connected simply to them and not to Jesus Christ, then we will never find peace. And where we begin is by knowing what Jesus has done for us. Henry Nouwen, I was looking at this quote last week, it had to do with joy, but I think you could say peace too when it comes to this. Here's what it says. It says joy, or I would say peace as well, is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and that nothing, sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, or even death can take that love away. Far too many are looking and hoping that the love of a spouse or a child or a boss or a particular home or whatever else dream, other dream it may be, that that's going to be the thing that gives us love and meaning and purpose. And when we think that, we will never discover the peace which transcends all human understanding, as Paul says in Philippians. First and foremost... Our peace is found in knowing who Jesus Christ is and in worshiping him as Lord and Savior. Now, 
There may be some of you who are astute and who are saying to yourself, well, that seems a little bit selfish. I mean, when I think of peace, it's much bigger than just between me and God, right? I mean, isn't it, you know, between others and, and, and between the world? And, and, and shouldn't there be, shouldn't we talk about more than that? And, and, and you are, of course, right. I mean, you know, shalom, the word for peace in Hebrew is very holistic. It's about peace with God, with one another, between creation and the earth, all of these things. But what I've kind of discerned over the years, as my guess is you as, have as well, is that if someone doesn't have peace with God, that they will never be able to bring peace anywhere else. As I was thinking about that this week, I was reminded of kind of, my, of the oxygen mask in airplanes. When I was growing up, we, uh, I, I flew a lot because we never lived close to family. And one summer we flew um, um, 20 times, around 20 times in just a summer, just trying to, to see people. So I was always sitting through the kind of, the, you know, the flight attendants going through all the stuff that none of us really pay attention to. But one of the things that always disturbed me was when they would say, the flight attendants would say, if their oxygen mask comes down, you know, then the adult, the parent, should put theirs on first and then put on their child. And I always thought, well, these people aren't very caring, right? Do they not have kids? Do they not care for us? Right? And all I could think of was, you know, the, the thing comes down and I can't hardly reach it and my mom's just like, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, you know, I'm gasping, you know? How rude is that? But then, and honestly, I think I was well in my 30s before I finally understood why they did this, which is this. It's very difficult for a parent to help out a child if the parent is either uh, uh, knocked out or dead. Right? If they are unconscious or dead, you can't be of much use to anyone else. Right? And so, of course, you put this on first, and then you can breathe freely so that then you can truly care for those that are around you. And I think it's much the same way when it comes to peace. I have seen many, especially pastors, I think maybe counselors sometimes they wrestle with this as well, who, who, who they are broken and are without peace and they think if I can go bring peace to others, then it's going to help me at some point. It'll make me feel better. And what I have discovered is that more often than not, when you have pastors or counselors or others who are without peace and are trying to bring peace to others, nothing good comes of it. 99 times out of 100, the people will be worse off than when they started. That we begin by feeling peace and understanding peace with Christ. But to be sure, it always should then be spilling out onto others. In fact, even in Ephesians, when Paul says, Jesus Christ is our peace, he then goes on to say, and he does away with the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. There is always a connection. The more peace that I am with who I am in Christ, the more I am then able to give peace to others. And I want you to know without question that one of the greatest things that we can do, as Scott McKnight points out, as a church to have an influence on the community and world around us is to be a people of peace. And if we are not, then we will be of little use. One of the ways that you see this, of course, is, is the reality that churches, if they are going to be a people of peace, they have to be a people who are not always in conflict with one another. Right? I mean, this shouldn't be that hard to understand, but the reality is there are churches who struggle with this. If, 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 if you have people in your community or world and they are without peace and they're struggling to have peace at their jobs and in their homes and with their families, there's a good chance they're not going to want to come and be a part of a church that's having conflict as well. 
Oh, everything else is going to, you know, going to pot. Let's come be a part of a church where we can engage in even more fights. That doesn't mean that the church can never disagree, but it does mean that we disagree as brothers and sisters in Christ in a peaceful, Christ-centered way. But it also means this, that's okay, it happens. I'm at peace even with the phone going off. Here's, <laughs> but it also means, and I want you to know this, it also means that we have a very active role to play as a people of peace. And I want you to hear this. Perhaps like many of you, hopefully like maybe most of you, I've been getting the devotions all week from ZPCers, and it's been great. I have loved receiving those every morning at about 7-11, I think is when it usually comes through in my phone. But one of them particularly hit home for me this week, and it was one done by Karen Elliott. I asked if I could share this, even though she texted it to everybody, or it was texted out to everybody, but it was a very vulnerable thing that she expressed, which is that after her divorce, one of the big questions that she had in her own mind is, how is this going to affect my son? And that, of course, struck me. As many of you know, I um, am a child of divorced parents, and I've actually, strangely enough, been thinking a lot about this of late. And the reason why I've been thinking about it is because my eldest uh, daughter, Shaughnessy, uh, is going to turn 10 in May. And 10 is how old I was when my father left my mom and when they separated. And it's a weird thing to see your kid reach that particular age. I mean, when you're 10, it's just the world that you live in. It's just the water you swim in. You don't even think about it. But all of a sudden now, here's this 10-year-old, soon-to-be 10-year-old, who I know and love deeply. And I see not only her at this point, quite frankly, I see myself as well. And I, I find myself kind of wondering what, what I was thinking through the eyes of Shaughnessy. And one of the things that I oftentimes want to do is I want to go and I want to hold her tight. And as strange as it may sound, here's what I know that I'm doing, which is that I am not just holding her tight. I am in some way trying to hold that little 10-year-old boy tight and telling him that it's going to be okay. That I know that it feels like everything is out of control and that you have no idea what's going to happen. But I want to hold that little 10-year-old Jerry and say, it's going to be can't do that. But here's what I want you to know. The church did that for me. When I was 10 years old and my mother and sister who were undergoing their own struggles and pain and they couldn't do that. But here's what I want you to know. This little church that I was a part of, they embraced me and they loved me. And it wasn't easy for them. I feel quite certain of it. I love the way Eugene Peterson talks about Bethlehem. He says it's the runt of the litter. I think in many ways I was the runt of the litter. I mean, I was an annoying little kid. Hard to imagine, I understand, what the man that I've become. But I was rude. I was sarcastic. My parent, uh, my best friend's uh, mom, wouldn't let me hang out with him for a while because of how mean I was. 
Looking back, I mean, of course, it makes sense. I was masking. I was trying to figure something out and, and what was going on. I felt out of control. But here's what I want you to know, that these people, they probably, they may not have even known it, but by their simply seeing me, And when I came through the doors on a Sunday morning and when they noticed me and when they called me by name and when they asked how things were going and when they gave me an embrace in those moments for a kid who thought there was no peace in those moments as brief as they may have been, I felt the peace of Christ. I want you to know that I am a different person today because of what they did more than 30 years ago. And I would be a fool to not think that a part of the reason why I am pastoring today is because of what I felt in that time and what I realized the power that a church who follows the Prince of Peace can have on whomever it is that may come through those doors or whomever it is that we meet when we go out on the highways and the byways of this earth. Where are you this morning? There may be some of you who have been trying to find peace in every place but Jesus Christ. Maybe today is the day when you can say, I'm going to stop searching. I am tired of my heart being restless. And I want to find my heart and my hope and my joy in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's because maybe you've just simply not been up on a balcony of Advent balcony in a while and you will realize that you are dancing to a completely different song than you should be. Or maybe you just need to be reminded of this. That you have the power through the Spirit of Christ to change someone's life by the ways in which you are a person of peace. It may be with someone who's going through the first Christmas they've ever gone through without a loved one who passed away. It may be with someone who's lost a job or is struggling. Maybe it's someone who's going through a divorce or an addiction. Or maybe it's just some little boy who seems to just mostly be a pain in the neck. but is desperate to know that he is loved and that there can be peace found in Christ. May we be a people who know in whom our peace is found. And as we grow in that, may it change not just us, but those with whom we meet. May it be so. Amen? Let's pray. God, we gather this morning in many different places. Some of us struggling with peace. Some of us who discover the peace and have lost it amongst the busyness of our lives. Maybe even some of us who are wondering 
whether or not the peace that we have can really make a difference in our world, in our community, in our neighborhood, in our church, in our home. So I pray this morning that you would help us to be a people who rest in you. And in so doing, may we reflect the Prince of Peace to those with whom we meet this day and in the days to come. It's in your name we pray. Amen.